We continue in Galatians. We've only got a few left here. Uh, We are entering, again, the practical part of Paul's letter. And we'll be studying this morning Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading that to you from the English Standard Version Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do stow away Bibles. Um, Underneath the seats, most, most of the way through the sanctuary, grab one of those. The page number should be printed in the bulletin as so you know where to turn. And as we offer each week, if you don't own a Bible personally, please take that one with you. Um, there's no more important book to own, to know, to study, to, to have in your possession than that of the Holy Scriptures in it. You'll learn who God is. You'll learn more about who you are. And as you see those two things next to one another, you'll know that you desperately need a Savior. And the good news is that the Bible also carries the answer to that problem, Jesus Christ. And so please take that with you uh, as a gift this morning. Again, I'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of Galatians 5. Please follow along as I read. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have given you thus far through music and prayer. I do pray that we would worship you as we listen to your word. I pray that you would guard my heart, guide my words, help me to say only that which you wish the congregation to hear. And Lord, we affirm that your spirit is here and we ask that it is uh, active in our hearts, convicting, cutting us to the marrow. Pray that you would Put in our hearts what you'd have us to hear this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I already got an amen for the sermon. There we go. All right. Off to a good start. As I mentioned, we are entering the practical part of Paul's letter. So far, uh, he has been redirecting the Galatians away from a theological heresy. So what's happened is uh, Paul and his missionary friends went through the Galatia. They preached the gospel. The people accepted that as truth. And just after they left and departed the area, some other folks came through called the Circumcision Party or the Judaizers, whatever you prefer to call them. Uh, and, and they went through and they changed the message. They said, no, 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 no. What Paul taught you was fake. It's false. Rather, to be saved, you must follow the law. You have to follow the Jewish law. And so what Paul's been doing, he's been telling them, he's been redirecting them, he's been saying, no, the law is not the way to salvation. In fact, it is an instrument of bondage and criticism. And rather than the law being the the way you approach Christ, Christ actually fulfilled this law. And he can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's done so far. And so as he enters this practical part, how Paul writes most of his letters is he lays out the theological argument and then he moves into the therefores. So because of this, here's how it should change you. Because of that, this is what you should do and think and say. And so we're entering that. And as we're entering that, he wants the Galatians, he wants those who read this letter, who are part of the church, he wants two things for them. 
in this, these six verses. He wants them, he wants them to, to know what their faith means. He wants them to understand exactly what they gain through their faith. And he wants them to see what is at stake if they take the way of the law. They've got these two paths before them. He wants them to know, here's what's going to happen. Here's what does happen when you follow the law for your righteousness. And here is what happens when you follow Christ for your salvation. In these first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of this passage, he lays it out clearly. He gives a summary meaning of our faith. He gives a command, and then he lays out the stakes. Let's take a look. The first phrase in verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What this means here, what he's getting at, is the fact that Jesus Christ himself has set us free for a purpose. Christ has set us free for a purpose. It's not a willy-nilly, right? He set you free to go for it. He sets you free for freedom. And so what he means here is Christ has set you free for his particular purpose. Let's talk about how Christ has set us free. We're going to go back to a fancy word we've been throwing out here and there, the word imputation. Imputation, not amputation. Imputation with an I. And what this means is this. For those who believe, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus now counts towards your salvation. And how it happens is this. As you put your faith in Christ, your sins were piled on Him at the cross. The cross is not just an example to follow or something unjust that happened. As Jesus was punished and tortured, He was punished and tortured for your sins. He was treated as if He did those things Himself. That's the first part of this transaction. The second part of the transaction is His sins, our sins are piled on Him and then His perfect, pure righteousness is piled on us simply because of faith. And so, imputation is this switch it's a, the great exchange. And in that great exchange, what happens? We are freed from our sin, our flesh, and the law. The word here exactly means that. It means that you are freed from servitude, confinement, and oppression. We no longer serve our flesh, sin, and the law. We no longer are confined by sin, our flesh, and the law. We are no longer oppressed by sin, our flesh, and the law. We're freed from those things. How? By Jesus Christ. John Stott says, the Christian freedom that Paul's describing here is freedom from conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view to winning the favor of God. It is the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Jesus Christ. That's the freedom that is mentioned here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He has set us free for His purpose. And so he, he gives that summary statement that he then gives a command. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, therefore. What Paul is saying in those three words, those three English words, is resist the temptation to justify yourself. Church, resist the temptation to justify yourself. He's recognizing the fact that the Galatians now know the two paths set before them. They may either choose, sorry, the side of the church, you're the justification by works side of the church this morning. Okay, so you may choose to justify your works through action and work, or you can have faith in Jesus Christ, receive that righteousness, receive that justification graciously. That's the two options they have. And he's saying, listen, you have to stand firm. There is temptation to go this way. You must stand firm, therefore, and go this way. That's what he's saying. And so he's commanding them, make a choice. 
Stand firm on the gospel of freedom and grace and love, faith and promise, or submit yourself to a system that can only lock you up. It can only lock you up. Remember, what is the, what is the use of the law? It's a prison. It's a moral chaperone. We have the same two choices today. We have the same two choices today. Every human being is subject to two choices. <laughs> the choice to enter freedom and faith in Jesus Christ or to continue in the bondage of our flesh, sin, and the law. That's the only two options. The only way to live are those two things. Either we choose Christ in faith. I used the wrong hand on that one. Choose Christ in faith or we try to earn our salvation by performing. The only two options. What I love about this passage is Paul lays it out straight. He does not, he does not beat around the bush. He, he lays out the stakes. And they're very vivid. Here's the summary. Verse 2. I love this. Look. <laughs> it's like, here's the deal. You've got to listen to this. Listen. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, we'll talk about that in a second, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. We see the two paths before us. This path, the law path, Christ is not there. He's not there. Christ is only on one of these paths. So if you choose this way, accept circumcision, Christ is not there. He's of no advantage to you. Here's what he means. Accepting circumcision is referring to the ritual that the Judaizers were hoping or telling the Galatians to take part in. Uh, if you want to know what circumcision is, type, it in, type it into the internet later. Um, I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, but it's a religious ritual. It's a religious ritual. And he's not talking specifically about the physical act of what they do in that ritual. He's saying, if you partake in that ritual, what are you doing? Your heart is committing to saying, I can save myself. I can save myself. I can find justification at the end of that path. I can find righteousness at the end of that path. And so to partake in circumcision in this case is to say, I commit myself to the law. I commit myself to it. And so if you commit to the system of works through this religious ritual, what is he saying? Christ is of no advantage. That's the result. You are choosing, in a sense, in a very real sense, the opposing system to the system that God, through Christ, has set up for salvation. You're choosing a different way. This is the proverbial having your cake and eating it too. You can't have this and that. They're mutually exclusive. They have nothing to do with one another. You literally cannot receive the benefits of Christ. That's what it means here by Christ is of no advantage to you. The benefits that are in Christ, you have no access to them if you choose this path. There's no grace now, there's no righteousness later. To choose law, Paul says, is to reject Christ. To choose to justify yourself is to reject Christ. I want you to understand, it's very important, this is not a loss of salvation passage. This is not a loss of salvation passage. The scripture makes it clear. You are, once you are saved, once you are in faith, you have given your life to Christ in faith, there's nothing that turns you back from that. I want to make sure we're comforting hearts, okay? This is not a lose your salvation. This is a, is a passage about choosing to rely on Christ for your salvation or to rely on yourself for salvation. That's what this passage is about. Now what he does in verses 3 and 4 is he really kind of uh, teases out this idea of the consequences 
of following the law. And so verses 3 and 4, there's three things that he's going to, there's three consequences he's going to spell out. The first one we see in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Remember, that's the ritual committing yourself to following the law for your salvation. That he is first obligated to keep the whole law. Obligated to keep the whole law. So to commit yourself to this path through this ritual to say, I can save myself, what do you lose? You lose out completely on grace. There is no grace on the path of the law. Uh, for those of you who know I'm a religion nerd, this won't surprise you, but I like to read about other religions and just try to get a good uh, mental understanding of the, the basics of what they teach. And what I want to tell you is what I've found in most religions that teach that through obedience you gain salvation, most of the religions that teach this, in fact all of them, in some way relax the laws and practice. There's no really way to be perfect, so what do we do? We, we relax what we have to do in order to get there. And in fact, the Pharisees, we read in the, um, the confession of sin this morning, the Pharisees did just that. Now, they, the system that the Pharisees set up in the New Testament was difficult. Let's not, let's not make it sound like it was easy. It was very difficult. It was very stringent. But here's the deal. It was obeyable. It was obeyable. They set rules so that it, through discipline and, and hard work, they could make themselves look great so they could stand in the temple and say what? Thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, in Matthew 5, 17, to the end of that chapter, he, like Paul right here, is attacking that idea. Here's what he says. In one place he says to the disciples, your, think about what these words mean, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. So who were the religious heavyweights, the all-stars of the first century when Jesus was around? The Pharisees. They did a lot of good. They fasted not just once, but like multiple times a week. They, they tithed their dill and their, all these things. So they, they, were, they were superhuman as far as righteousness was concerned. And what Jesus says to his disciples is, your righteousness has to exceed that. That's not good enough. He says later in that same passage, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh boy, what are we going to do about that? We have to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. What he's not saying is the only way to be saved is perfect. The only way to be saved is to be perfect. He's not saying that. All these statements that he's making in the Sermon on the Mount go back to the very first verse, the very first statement of that sermon. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, only those who know, who feel the weight of their spiritual bankruptcy do you hear that? You know you can't do it. You've not made this other set of laws that you feel like, oh, that was hard, but I got there. If you look at the weight of the perfect law that demands our purity, and you understand where you're at, you will be poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. And in that bankruptcy, what do you do? You look for a savior. You're desperate. I can't save myself. I need someone else. I need something else. And where do you go? to Jesus Christ, the only one who ever followed the law in all of its dots and crosses. That's the message of Jesus. That's also the message here of Paul. Paul and Jesus are aligned in their message. What is that message? I thought this week, as soon as I wrote this note in my sermon of an old commercial when I was a kid about hefty garbage bags, they had the hefty, hefty cinch sack. And then there was the other one that was wimpy, 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 okay? The, 
Paul's saying, you don't get the wimpy, wimpy, wimpy law. You don't get that law. You get the hefty, hefty cinch sack law. You get the whole thing. If you're going to do this thing, you, get the, you must follow every little part of it. You have to follow the whole perfect entirety of the law, the whole thing. And so, like Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul is intensifying what this means. This is not, hey, get circumcised. Now you can work real hard and get there. No, if you do this, the entire law, every little piece of it, it's your responsibility. It's on you. There's no grace there. You realize one slip in that system, and what happens? It's over. You're guilty of the whole thing. The whole enchilada is gone. And so in this system of law, it is certainly graceless. What else? In this system of law, there's no way of gaining full forgiveness. Look at verse 4. This middle phrase, you who would be justified by the law, it's connected to both phrases at the beginning and end of this verse. And so he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Severed from Christ. This sounds so extreme. So extreme. In the law, in the system of law, as you choose to follow that, there's no real forgiveness. There's no real forgiveness. You are severed from Christ. Now, let's talk about this. Some of you may be thinking, well, in the law there were ceremonies for, for atonement, yes, but understand those were temporary. You had to repeat that ceremony over and over and over and over and over again forever. To just make yourself pure, not because you are pure, but because this sacrifice stood in its place. Those sacrifices never were meant to be a permanent solution. They pointed to something else. Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. But in that system, you, you did that thing over and over. It was temporary. You were alleviated until what? The next time. And so what he's saying here is to, to commit to the law as your personal means of salvation is to sever yourself from Christ. So back to this imputation idea. Think about this, the two paths before you. One is to Christ through faith. One is to self-righteousness through the law. If you choose this path, what are you leaving behind? Jesus Christ. This word means to, that you are rejecting all the benefits like we already talked about with Christ. And so because we're rejecting the benefits, what do we lose out on? Imputation. If your sin was never put on Christ's shoulders, where does it still stand? On your own. If, if Christ never took that, that weight, that burden for you, if that transaction never took place, your sins are on your shoulders. Where they rightfully belong. Let's think about this. This is not a passage of injustice. This is not unfair. Think about the word mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is something done that you don't deserve out of love. If mercy were obligated, it wouldn't be mercy. It'd just be what you owe. It'd be a wage. And so in this place, we have to understand that what we deserve is no mercy. No mercy is justice. And so what Paul is explaining here is justice. If you choose not to escape your sin through Christ, justice will be served. Faith in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way any of us, all of us, escape justice. Graceless, unforgiving, cold, accurate justice. 
We are sinners. And so when we choose the law, we choose unforgiveness. Now, following this line of logic, <clears throat> what is the ultimate end? What's the ultimate result? Second part of verse 4. Again, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. What do we graciously gain through Jesus Christ and faith? Righteousness. So ultimately, these two paths to righteousness, one through faith and you receive righteousness by grace, not because you are right, but because of who Jesus is and what he has earned and what he gives us. And this one, you're trying to earn it for yourself. Ultimately, when you take that path, what do you lose? Righteousness. You can't attain it. You have fallen away from grace. With no Christ, no grace, no forgiveness, you are left with no righteousness. What Paul's saying here is, you who would be justified by the law, you are cut off from justification. It only makes sense. You cannot hold the thing that enslaves you and be free. I'm forced at this moment to think of the Lord of the Rings and use it as an illustration. I tried to think of something else but I'm stuck with it. So here we have Frodo in Mount Doom. I'm referring to the movie, by the way, not the book. So any of you that are purists, just know it, okay? Frodo is in Mount Doom. There's flames and lava everywhere. He has the ring of power in his hands, the thing that's enslaved his mind and his body for a long time, and all he has to do is drop it in the lava. And what does he do? He chooses to hang on to it. He can't be free and keep it. It's the same. It's the same for us. We can't choose to justify ourselves and be free from these things. If we want grace and forgiveness and righteousness, we cannot go on this path. It's not found on that path. Again, John Stott says, it is impossible to receive Christ acknowledging that you cannot save yourself. You see? And then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can you cannot say, I can't do it, and then say, but watch me do it. You can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. They don't belong together. And so Paul here at the end of verse 4, the case that he's making is this, to commit yourself to earning God's love, earning God's grace, earning God's forgiveness, earning God's righteousness is the very act of rejecting Christ's grace and forgiveness and his righteousness. To choose one is to reject the other. What does Paul want? Paul wants those who have heard the gospel to be free from bondage. This passage, I remember in college reading this verse 1 of Galatians 5 and feeling like the Christianity I grew up with is different than this one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It's a joyous thing. You can't read that and not be attracted to it. And so what, is, what does Paul want? He wants those who have heard the gospel to be free from bondage. And so we go to verses 5 and 6 to see a, a summary of the purpose of Christ or the Christian life. I start at the beginning of verse 5. There's, here it says, for through the Spirit by faith. And there's a comma and it continues, but let's stop right there. Understand this, church, that the Christian life begins with faith powered by the Holy Spirit. The Christian life begins with faith powered by the Holy Spirit. It says here, for through the Spirit by faith. It's good to mention that the Holy Spirit is going to be a recurring character for the rest of this book, is the agent of faith. The Holy Spirit is the agent of faith. What does the Holy Spirit do? It enables true knowledge, 
true affirmation and trust. It enables our faith. Knowledge, affirmation, trust, these are the things that consist, our faith consists of. It enables that. We can't even, we don't even have the ability to do that unless we have the Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, he's still kind of comparing the two. The system of law is run on what? Manpower. And manpower is feeble, inconsistent, and weak. What is the system of Christ run on? It's run on spirit power. Powerful, unfailing, and freeing. So he's saying those who are freed to partake in the purpose of Christ are given this mighty gift. Christian, understand, if you have given your life to Christ in faith, you have, fact, the Holy Spirit. It's there. You have to beg for it. You have to ask for it. It's there. It's a resource. It's, it's with you. It's in you. It's not something you have to do extra to get it later. It's yours. It enables us to, to, to hear the truth and understand it. it. The Spirit literally empowers us to do that. Literally. In other words, literally. is thrown around a lot inappropriately. This, I mean it. Literally, the Spirit empowers you to get knowledge and understand it. The Spirit convicts us of sin and, and enables repentance. If, if the Spirit is in us, when the Spirit is in us, we can look at our sin and call it what it is. When the Spirit is in us, we can turn from that, away from disobedience toward obedience. And when we doubt, we can go to the Spirit. The Spirit is with us to assure us. In fact, that's a great prayer. When you're in doubt, Spirit, reassure me. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your actions. Don't look to the quality of your faith. Look to the Spirit who is with you. And so we have, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves... Wait for the hope, eagerly wait, excuse me, for the hope of righteousness. And so the Christian life, it begins in this faith powered by the Spirit. It continues in hope and gracious righteousness. What is our final hope, church? What's our final hope? Our final hope is that at the end of time, as we stand before God and our sins have been reviewed, okay, that happens. Our sins are reviewed. And God is standing there to judge us. What is our hope? Not, oh, we're not doing this, okay? We eagerly, excitedly, confidently wait for him to say, not guilty on account of Christ. Christ's righteousness is this person's. This is not something we're like, oh, I don't know. When we have the Spirit, when we're in faith, we can confidently, expectantly, eagerly wait for that. And that gives us hope right here, right now. I was telling a friend this week, grace doesn't erase natural consequences. It gives us courage to face them. And what that means is we have this hope that we are accepted by God. That He loves us. That He holds us close no matter what. And that gives us courage to face whatever condemnation there is here on earth because it doesn't hold a candle to the acceptance we have through God. We're not found not guilty because we are sinless. Not because we're better than someone else. Because dads, we survived the weekend without our wives. I mean, that's not... That's not a jewel in your crown. That's just being a dad for the weekend, right? It's good that they're still alive, though. That's great. We, we get that because of Jesus Christ. This path in faith saying, I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. That's, that's a non-work. That's nothing. And what it gets us is this righteousness that we wait for. A righteousness that gives us hope. And so if... 
The, the faith, our Christian life begins with faith powered by the Spirit. It continues with hope and gracious righteousness. It consists of, it's made up of faith working through love. Look at verse 6 with me. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What does this verse mean in general? What this verse means is you have been empowered by the Spirit to have faith. You have this faith. That faith allows you to believe and eagerly await this thing that you're waiting for called righteousness. And now in the meantime, guess what you can do? Powered by the Spirit, you can obey the law of God. What? <laughs> We've been talking all this time about law and faith, and we're back to obeying the law. Yes, let me explain. We're going to take this verse one section at a time. For in Christ, Paul is finishing the thought he started. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he's, he's continuing. For in Christ, he's reminding you that Jesus has freed us from bondage for his purpose. There's a purpose to it. For freedom. I know some, some uh, interpretations say for freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. And so he's reminding us in Christ Jesus, there's this purpose we have to fulfill. There's a purpose he's called us to. And because we're in this system, he continues, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. I love this. Neither counts for anything. This word that kind of we put into those many English words, it means it serves no function. It serves no function. So Paul's saying, in this system that Christ has established, that, call has, that, that Christ has freed you from sin to enter, circumcision nor uncircumcision serve any purpose. What does he mean? He means that physical ritual obedience or pagan disobedience, neither one of those things function in this system. Legalism and license, they don't have a place here. It's not living for the law for our righteousness or living for ourselves for happiness. Neither one of those things operate in this system. Rather, it is faith working through love. Faith working through love. This phrase is very, very deep and complex. So we're going to take these three words, faith working in love, and we're going to explain them. We've got another hour and a half to go, so just, you got this. All right. I promise not that. What this phrase means, and, and this phrase is misunderstood throughout many different denominations and, and, and different folks who use the Bible as, as their system of belief. I want to make sure we're clear on what this means this morning. As you look, again, at the original languages like I do each week, this meaning comes out, and it's so clear once you see it. But faith working through love, if we just look at that, it can mean a lot of different things, and a lot of those things are incorrect. First, let's look at the word faith. Faith. For those of you who've been partaking in the Sunday school class, uh, we had a chapter on faith just a couple weeks ago. And as kind of a paraphrase, uh, um, uh, the, the book said that faith consists of knowledge, affirmation, and trust. So faith comes from knowing the truth, hearing the truth, knowing that, affirming that it's true, and then trusting it's true. Hearing information, affirming it's true, then living as if it's true. That's the, the action of faith, is that three kind of part process. It's a cycle. Okay, so you, I heard something about God, I affirm that it's true, I trust and live like it's true. The Christian life 
is the repetition of that cycle over and over and over again. There's this sense in scriptures where it talks about great faith, little faith, all these things. What does that mean? So think about Jesus talking to his disciples. Oh, ye of little faith, right? What does he mean by that? He's saying you either are not knowing who I am or you're not affirming who I am or you're not trusting who I am. It's one of those three things. And so as we want to have bigger faith, deeper faith, what do we do? We learn, we affirm, we trust. We learn, we affirm, we trust over and over and over again. This is the cycle of deepening our personal faith. And so as we do that, as we repeat that cycle over and over, as we focus on who Christ is, who God is, what happens? We become more and more like Him. I was thinking back to uh, one summer in college, Damien Rice put on an album called Nine, and it was a great album, and I listened to that album over and over and over and over again, and he sings really sad songs. It was a bummer of a summer. I mean, I was sad all the time. I was sad all the time, (laughs) right? I mean, it was just all the time. I was sad. And what happens, and that's just my dumb college brain listening to something over and over again. What happens in this spirit-powered Christian life that we walk as we focus on Christ and learn about Christ and affirm that those things are true and trust and live as if they are true? Our faith will grow deeper and deeper and deeper, not because we're great, not because we're smart, but because we are powered by the Holy Spirit. And so faith working, this word working, means operating as expected. Isn't that wonderful? Operating as expected. As our faith grows, as we focus on God, we trust more of who He is accurately, our faith will operate as it expects, as we expect it to, as it is designed to operate. As we draw closer and closer and closer to God, we'll become more and more and more like Him. As we draw closer and closer and closer to Jesus, trusting Him more, knowing more, affirming more, trusting more, again and again, it'll draw us closer and we'll become more like Him. And as we focus and draw near, what happens? Our faith deepens and our love of God and of neighbor will deepen as well. That's what it means through love. So faith working through love, here's what it really means. Our faith animates our love. Imagine this. Our faith animates, brings to life our love, and through our love, we start caring for and doing good works for those around us. That's what Paul's getting at. And you're going to see through the practical portion of this Scripture, this is not just a license to do as you please. This is Christ setting you free for a purpose, His purpose. And so in the end, what is the meaning of this passage? The meaning of this passage could be said to be Christ has set us free in order to serve His purpose. Christ has set us free in order to serve His purpose. That's the meaning. I think we need to go further than that and ask what is His purpose? His purpose for us is faith working through love. As we deepen our faith, as our love is animated and it grows, out of that love we'll pour good works. We'll love God more. We'll love our neighbor more. This is the design of the law from the beginning. What does it say in Jeremiah? When, when, when I come again, this new covenant, it's not going to be written on stone. It's going to be written on your heart. And so naturally, what do we do? We get to know God more. And, and then as we get to know God more, we love Him more and we trust Him more. And as we love Him more and trust Him more, we, we become more like Him. And as we become more like Him, we love Him more. And as we love Him more and the people around us more, we do more things for them because we love them. Not because we're obligated. And so the command in this passage is stand firm, therefore. What does that look like for us? What does it mean to stand firm for us? What does it mean to fulfill this purpose that Christ has called us to? 
How do we operate within this system that Jesus has set up for His people? I have two things. First, focus on Christ and see your faith grow. Focus on Christ and see your faith grow. That's first. God has given us many regular ways through which we can increase our faith. Increase our faith. He gives us the Word of God. He gives us sermons. He gives us even now podcasts. I mean, I'm not the only one who preaches in the world, okay? That's just, it's a normal thing on Sunday. There's a lot of people preaching, and they record it. And they put it online. Listen to more of those. Read your Bible. Certainly engage in personal study of the whole Scriptures. God has given us this Bible not just as, a, as an ornament on a shelf or a paperweight. The knowledge of who God is, the things He wants us to know about Him are right here in front of us. We also have the sacrament. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, this is an opportunity to deepen your faith. When our children or, or new people who are come to Christ are baptized, it's a, it's a faith-deepening event. Prayer, personal and together. Prayer deepens our faith. The more we pray, the more we're going to see God come through. Not because it's like a weight and measurement thing, but it's because as we pour our heart out to God, we're going to see Him work because why? We're focused on Him. Fellowship with believers. The food part for sure, but also the truth and love part, especially that. As we meet in our life groups, as we meet in our triads or quadrads or whatever you do, you do for accountability, are you speaking the truth and love? Are you, are you bringing the gospel to your brothers and sisters? So repeat that cycle in our lives. Let's commit to that. Knowledge, affirmation, trust. Us good Presbyterians, we, we love the knowledge one. Woohoo! Exciting! We love the affirmation part. Oh, you better believe we're right. Do we trust these things are true? That's the big question. Do we live like they're true? The second one might get me fired. Are you ready for this? Second application. Are you ready for this? Obey. <laughs> After all this time of talking about the law and talking about faith, obey, seriously, Ransom? Yes. Listen, the next step after putting these things in your mind and your heart and seeing who God is, is to put those things you learn into practice. Put them into practice. Now this is not grinded out for your self-righteousness kind of obedience. This is power of the Spirit, freedom from condemnation, love that is growing for Christ kind of obedience. It's an obedience that comes not out of like, do it, do it, do it, earn it, earn it, earn it. It comes from, God, you are amazing and I love my neighbors. These things we've talked about today, this, the path of faith, all these things that are true, imputation, Him taking your sins, giving you righteousness, the hope of that righteousness at the end, all these things are motivators. They're sustainers. And they free you to serve the purposes of Christ in your life. So Christ has set us free in order to serve His purpose. What is that purpose? Faith working through love. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I ask You to help us to stand firm. I pray for those who are here that, that are hearing this message and they're realizing they've been on the wrong path for a long time. Either the path of self-righteousness and self-justification, I've got to earn this, or the path of I'm just going to serve myself and no one else. That path has no place in Christ's system 
of salvation. It has no place in the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord, that those who are there would repent and turn like we all must towards faith in Jesus Christ. May they say this morning, I recognize I cannot save myself. I pray for those of us who have made that leap already. We still struggle with both of those things. We still think at times, I've got to perform or God won't be pleased. I've got to perform or God won't love. I've got to perform or fill in the blank. And it's just not true. Neither is it true that if we go out after our own fleshly pleasures, that we will have the best satisfying life that we can find. That is just not true. May we repent of that and see our sin. And may we turn to you. May we engage this cycle of learning about who you are, affirming those things are true, and trusting and living as if they are. I pray, Lord, that for this church, that our faith would grow deeper and bigger and wider. And through that, lo- that faith, we would animate a great love that is yet to be seen in Northeast Columbia. A love that causes us to serve you and love you and worship you and to serve our neighbors and, and love our neighbors. Not because of obligation, but because we see who you are and what you have done for us already, and it's free. May we share that mercy with those around us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Church, right now we have an opportunity, by God's grace, to increase our faith. We have an opportunity to increase our faith. We are going to be nourished physically through this bread, this delicious, soft bread, or the gluten-free kind. Uh, and we have this juice or this wine. We have these, they're going to come into our bodies, and our bodies do all kinds of cool chemical things with that. I'm not a biologist. But, so physically we are nourished as a symbol. So we have this symbol of food. But really, truly, what's happening here? The Spirit of God is here. And through the power of the Spirit, Jesus is present, and we are about to be nourished in our very souls by this thing. Do we believe that? Do we partake in that? Let's bolster our faith with that truth this morning. And so, those who affirm these things are invited. You affirm that you are a sinner. You cannot do it yourself. You are broken and in need, desperate need of a Savior. You are spiritually bankrupt, we said this morning. You believe that and you look to Christ alone for your salvation. You've been baptized. You've confessed your sins. Trust that you are forgiven. You are invited to come and bolster your faith this morning. For those of you that do not affirm that truth, that Jesus is your Savior, your only hope, or you have a sin you're holding on to, you will not let go of it. The Scriptures make it clear that this is not a wise opportunity for you to come forward and partake in this meal. Let's take a moment to pray and discern and pray, those of you specifically that are members here or Christians, let's just pray that that our faith is deepened and we believe that that to be true. Let's, Let's pray for a few moments.